1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in lovely Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Darren Fairbanks, and today we are continuing our two-part conversation looking at lobsters, Maine lobsters in particular. And and today we're going to start the show off. We're on the line with Robin Eldon. She's the executive director of the Penobscot East Resource Center. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I, I'm I'm excited to kind of tuck in and kind of continue on some of the themes that we explored um, in, in the last section. But before we before we go, why don't you take a chance to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of, of the scope of your work at the resource center?
3: Okay, uh, we're a we're a nonprofit in Stonington, Maine. Stonington's a little a small fishing town, which is actually the largest uh, lobster landing port in Maine. Um, And uh, it's on an island with a bridge, and our work is uh, to do with securing a future for fishing communities in eastern Maine. So we work in a number of different parameters, um, trying to make sure that there are abundant resources, well-managed fisheries, that fishermen have access rights to fish those um, species, and then that they can be profitable doing it.
2: No, you guys started in 2003. Was there something in particular that happened that year that um, prompted the formation of the organization, or was it just kind of a timing happenstance or a collection of uh, you know people at the right time?
3: It was mostly people at the right time, but um, there. So there wasn't one catalyzing event. But overall, um, what we had been seeing, those of us who were fishermen's wives, fishermen. Um, policymakers, different people who were all connected to the eastern Maine fishing community, Uh, we had lost a major fishery that was not as important in dollars figures as lobster, but another significant contributor to our economy, Um, and that is the groundfish, the cod, and the haddock, and the pollock, and the hake, and the flounders. And we had had a stock collapse that happened in the mid-90s. And we had tried on a volunteer basis as a community organization to uh, make change. And what we realized was we really needed a stronger, uh, more powerful organization that could work on a number of different fronts from very local all the way to national.
2: So, what were some of the like? What, one of the, can you just talk a little bit about some of those first kind of uh, meetings and conversations when you got started? I mean, was yep. because you guys focus, you know, not just on lobster but the the kind of overall health of the fishing community. So, I'm just curious, like what yep. the the pressing concerns were at the beginning and how maybe those have changed. It was
3: actually fascinating. What happened was. um, uh, the fishermen that were part of a smaller group called Stonington Fisheries Alliance, um, had spent a lot of time talking about the need to have diverse opportunities because the thing about harvesting a wild food is that you are you do your best to be sustainable in terms of your own fishing practices, but you are at the mercy of what the ecosystem provides. And so, when suddenly there were we lost such a major part of our market basket, if you will, the the ground fish, Um, fishermen were saying, we've got to take care of what we have, because lobster is basically all we have right now. And just to give you a perspective, the two counties we work in are over 90% dependent for their fishing revenue um, on lobster. And they're the two most fishery-dependent counties on the East Coast. So lobster It was a very unstable situation, and it actually has continued that way. So the conversation was, number one, how can we make sure that we take care of the lobster resource, that we have some kind of fallback uh, plan for if the lobster resource goes down? And that led to the formation of a lobster hatchery, actually, which I can talk about. But, um, And then we've got to make sure that we continue to have access, access rights and try to replenish the other species like scallops, and ground fish so that we have options.
2: So what are, what are the roles that lobster fishermen play um, in in supporting kind of the revitalization of some of those other fisheries? Is there things that they can or can't do or should or shouldn't do that will kind of support the, the growth of kind of the other um, types of fishing that happens in the region?
3: So the approach that we are working on all the time is called co-management, where fishermen's uh, knowledge and perceptions of what's happening in the um, bays and coves where they work um, is funneled in through science into decision making. And so um, one example of this would be work we've been doing um, with scallop fishermen and state managers um, about sea scallop management in Maine in the last four years. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, First of all, what I should say is that traditionally in Maine, fishermen are not categorized completely as one, you know, you're not a lobsterman or a scallop fisherman, you're a fisherman first and foremost, and then you are fishing a suite of species that may change year to year or um, season to season based on either abundance, market, or your preference. Got it. Got it.
2: So one of the things that I found interesting when I I spent a little time out uh, lobstering with some friends a few years ago was that, you know, primarily in the lobster traps, what we pulled up was lobster. But there was, you know, occasionally uh, the the days that we were out, we we ended up grabbing up a lot of crabs, but we, you know, threw most of them back because there was no kind of... uh, established market or wasn't kind of worth the time for the for the i mean that's what i was told and i was you know to me someone who grew up in like the midwest like the idea of like you know putting back the abundance was kind of um surprising but uh is that is that uh go ahead
3: that's the that's the other thing about the lobster fishery that makes it a model as a sustainable fishery because um and this is the surprise that you felt seeing all of the lobsters and crabs that go back over the side is um, something that happens when you have fishermen from other countries come or other parts of the country. Often people are really surprised. So lobstermen, have they protect the small um, lobsters and the large lobsters. So there's they, they're protecting the, the juveniles and making sure that they grow up to reproduce. And then they protect the big breeding lobsters. Um, and they throw everything else. Um, they threw the, all of those overboard, and so they only keep what's essentially called in some fisheries a slot limit of certain sizes, and they also aren't they don't, don't keep any lobsters with eggs on them. And so right. this is a tr- tremendously, um, this is undoubtedly a major reason why um, the lobster fishery is so productive right now.
2: And so that's one of the things that's confusing to me about the 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 collapse of the ground the ground fish uh, fisheries. Because was it just that those kind of like standards um, or understanding of supply didn't exist or weren't being followed? Or I mean, are there some key points that you've been able to identify in your community that you can point to and say that's where we went wrong, and and we need to kind of watch out for that in regards to lobster or. Is it still yeah. a little unknown? So I
3: think that um, lobster protects the all the critical life stage bottlenecks, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. making sure to protect the young ones and the and the mothers and make sure that they're large males to breed with the large females and so forth. So, And then lobster traps protect the habitat that lobsters live in. So um, they don't... Traps themselves don't protect the habitat, but the methods that are used for fishing lobster doesn't uh, harm the habitat where lobsters live. So, um, and then, of course, we feed them with bait, um, which may be a good thing or maybe a bad thing, but it's, you know, it's not a, um, it may not be a big impact. So, so uh, the overall structure of the lobster fishery is structured to be sustainable over the long term. That doesn't mean that the lobster resource won't go up and down with environmental conditions. But what it means is that you're always allowing that population to have um, what it needs to make the most that it can with the current ecological conditions. We didn't do those same things with groundfish.
2: So is that then a resource that, I mean, there is potential for that to be a resource that is is lost forever. Um, But... But,
3: we're, we're very hopeful right now about mm-hmm. eastern Maine, and the reason that we're hopeful is that, first of all, there's been new science that's uh, uh, been developed in the last 20 years that shows that there that groundfish actually um, function in much smaller subpopulations than we thought before. We thought, on average, there were fish in the ocean, but now we know that there are specific Spawning areas, and those fish will, fish that are born there will, that are hatched there will, um, home back to spawn again. So it's sort of like a salmon
0: mm-hmm. in the ocean.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then um, we also know that probably the reason that those spawning areas became so important and possibly um, behaviorally and even genetically distinct is that um, there was food there twelve months a year. Maine is undergoing a huge restoration of its river fish, um, removing dams in major rivers and opening up fish passage on places where the dams can't be removed. So we're expecting a huge um, increase in the what's called river herring uh, populations. And we believe that that probably will, will change the conditions and allow ground fish in that area to start to rebuild again.
2: And I think you know you identified at the beginning of the show that in the communities that you work with, uh, about ninety percent of the fishermen are dependent on on the lobster supply. So there is an incentive to diversify income streams in your region. So essentially, there do you find that like people are kind of coming to the table um, with the, with the same set of priorities with regards to kind of balancing or is that is it is a, is it a challenge to kind of get everyone on board or or how do people kind of understand their role in diversifying the um the streams of for potential income as fishermen
3: and when you're talking to people, you mean fishermen right? yes,
2: sorry <laughs>
3: yeah <laughs> thats right yeah so um so they're very different perceptions about um how important diversification is um if you talk to older fishermen over sixty, they say. You always need a backup plan because they've seen fisheries go down and been without. If you're talking to somebody who's been fishing in the last 15 years, they have no experience with those other fisheries. They probably don't have access rights to fish them because those fisheries are gone and the licensing system has has essentially excluded them. And um, and they have been doing very well with lobster. So. Um, but at the same time, there are young people who, let they are bored with just lobstering and want to do something else. So it's a wide range, and some people have no interest in diversification. Others can't wait to.
2: Yeah, that was one of the interesting things. It seems like there's a real priority in your organization to actively not, not just protect the fisheries, but also to protect the, the, the way of life in these communities, that the, there is an expectation by the communities that, their children or grandchildren are going to be able to I- inherit their businesses, inherit this way of life, and you see that as something of like value and worth preserving um, equally, it seems, to, to the actual fish or lobster.
3: We think that um, fishing is an amazing way of making a living. Um, if you treat the resource right, you can have that living forever right where you live. Um, Maine has... A very interesting fishery because it's so because lobster so dominates it. Lobster is an owner-operator um, fishery, which means that the um, scale of the businesses is all uh, you know family businesses, and you have to the person who actually doing the fishing is the person who owns the boat and is invested in the future of of that business. Um, so, so we feel it's not only uh, marvelous way to make a living, but also that many small-scale fishermen who have the ability to adapt from one fishery to another um, actually are a critical piece of the future of fishery management because when you fish from one place, you care about what what is happening there. And you also have local knowledge that, that no government science organization can ever afford to uh, collect. It's far more detailed information than, you know, a state or federal agency can ever hope to collect. If, as the climate changes and we have a changing ocean, that information is going to become extremely important. And I see, and the East mission sees this community-scale fishermen being a major part of how we take care of our fisheries in the long run. And in the process, their families will be able to continue to fish for
2: generations. Excellent. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking some time to um, lend some insight. And if folks want to find out more about the organization and look at uh, other ways to support you, they can visit www.penobscoteast.com. What is the best way uh, if folks want to get involved or, or support the work that you're doing?
3: Well, um, uh, it, first of all, it's possible to donate online through our website, and we always appreciate any support. Um, any, anyone who has an um, interest in community-scale fishing, has an interest in marine research, um, interest in governance and process um, education, we would love to hear from them.
2: Excellent. Well, folks, don't be shy. Reach out. And Robin, hopefully we'll have you back again soon to uh, keep this conversation going. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
2: We are going to move to just a short break. When we come back, we'll be on the line with Chad Door of Door Lobster. So hang tight.
1: You're listening to Bang Bang Sun by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Keep it locked for more The Farm Report. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a Locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
2: You are tuned into The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Chad Doerr of Door Lobster. Chad, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So I'm, I'm really excited to uh, get a little perspective on your business. It was fun kind of daydreaming uh, uh, potential lobster meals while sorting through your site. But um, I know that your family's been in business since 1977. Uh, how did you guys get started? Um, what, what, what was kind of the impetus for the launch of Door Lobster?
4: Well, my father's been a fisherman his whole life, and that kind of has grown our business. Like, when he was young, he wanted to uh, kind of branch off on his own rather than just selling to the same old person. He uh, decided to kind of start his own lobster business, and we had one lobster pound. And as we've kind of grown, and, and myself and our family has expanded, we've, we've added on over the years.
2: So for folks who aren't familiar, what is a lobster pound?
4: A lobster pound is like a somewhat of a pending area in the ocean, like out of a cove, that we put the lobsters that we were unable to ship in the season where they're really soft. Um, we'll put them in there, feed them, you know, harden them up. It takes about three to four months to really get their shell and to, to get more meat into them. Um, and that kind of allows us to take them out when we need them and more like inventory control
2: Got it. So, in general, how is it that lobsters making its way to to your cove or or to your business?
4: Um, we buy them like my father, like I said, he's a fa- fisherman, and we have several family members that sell lobsters to us. We buy off other local boats in the area, and then we grade them and sort them out to what we feel is the best quality that we can ship. Or we need to use in other other places.
2: Got it. So when a lobster boat kind of pulls up to to your dock, I mean, kind of walk us through that process as they're unloading. What is it that you guys are doing, looking for, and, and where does a lobster kind of go from the boat as it enters your your space?
4: Yeah, basically, what happens? Like the fisherman has been out all day hauling, and they'll bring their catch into to someone like me. And when we get it, they'll bring it up to our our grading facility, we'll call it our tank house, is what we call it. And we'll, we'll individually look at the lobsters, weigh them out to certain sizes, to the quality of the shell. Um, if we don't feel it's uh, market quality, we'll either use it in-house, cook it, meat it out, and sell the meat, or we'll send it to a larger size processor if the volume is really heavy. And, you know, they do the same thing.
2: So every piece of you know every single lobster kind of gets looked at, and then you you grade it on a set of criteria. So I'm going to guess that you know just there's kind of general uh, appearance, and then the what are some of the other criteria as you're looking to sort them, and what are the grades? Can you can you t- talk us through that?
4: Yeah, basically, like the criteria we kind of like the the common criteria is the weight. Okay. Uh, there's one pound, pound and a quarter, pound and a half two pound, three pound, and, you know, about four pound, four and a half pound is about the legal size in the state of Maine. So first we'll we we'll kind of look at it, we'll base our market on size-wise. Then, you know, coming into the summer, there's a little bit different grade because we have the shedders, we'll say the new shell lobsters that have the softer shell, and then you have the harder shell lobsters that we're able to ship in our boxes. So, you know, we'll grade it upon that base and also like whether they have one claw or a small claw, um, what we you see in restaurants and grocery stores are kind of the, the final product that's able to be put on a dinner plate.
2: Those are kinda of, that that would be essentially like the the top of the line if we were sure. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So um there, so you have the kind of, you know, the, the fish that you're, you can ship out whole, that you can ship out live, that are the right size, that have the hard shell. And then you have kind of uh, a, 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 other variety of sizes or the soft shell lobsters. So you guys also, in, adi- in addition to, to doing kind of the live distribution to retail customers, do you sell to wholesale customers as well?
4: Yeah, we have a number of restaurants we sell to, uh, a couple grocery store chains local here in Maine, and I do deal with other wholesalers if I have an overrun of product that I cannot sell myself.
2: So there's some flexibility there. Well, so if you're going to um, cook some of the lobsters, can you take us through that? Because I know that... Mainers are very specific about uh, about the cooking process. I've definitely been reprimanded um, on, on some of my initial techniques. So, what are what are what are the equipment that you use, and what are the different ways you cook or pack for the stuff that you're doing as a prepared food?
4: Um, the way we do, like you know, a lot of my prepared food is basically almost the straight up lobster meat. Like we'll cook a big batch of them. Um, you know. 15, 20 minutes, depending on the size, and cook it to the specific doneness, we'll call it, and um, just make sure the meat isn't overcooked or undercooked, and just, uh, we'll package it as just raw meat. Like, we really don't get into too much other value-added stuff.
2: Got it. And so, are, you, are the lobsters, like, once they're, do you cook them whole, or do you break the, you know, break them into pieces before you cook them? We
4: cook them whole, but, you know, depending on the amount of volume you're doing, like these larger processors, they will break the lobster down. Um, They're doing tails, and then they'll cook the front half of the lobster, which is the claws and knuckles. Um, And you can just cook more of a a volume in a batch than cooking the bodies.
2: And um, then as far as the picking process, is that usually done by hand?
4: Yep. There are. Our process is done by hand. it is very very tedious work, and that's kinda where the the cost is factored into it and why you might see it more expensive in certain places is just the time and labor that is put into picking lobster meat
2: yeah um so you you cook it you pick it, and then are you how are you are you canning it or are you vacuum sealing it or what's no,
4: we va- we vacuum seal it um Typically, what we do with most of our stuff is like we'll vacuum seal it and sell it fresh. Or if we pick more than we're selling daily, we'll we'll fresh freeze it, and it allows us to uh, have a better quality when we ship it out in our boxes.
2: One of the things that I, I found out um, doing these interviews is that you know last year was a really big season for lobster that there there was a it was a way above average catch and I'm curious you know for for a fisherman when you get up in the morning and you go out to haul lobster do you know or at what point do you know kind of how much that lobster is going to be worth when you get back to the dock and do prices vary from place to place how does that work
4: Basically I mean you know typically the price doesn't fluctuate every day um, you know, it will fluctuate a little bit throughout the summer months. It, it's really based on supply and demand. But you're not going to go out one day and it's two dollars, and the next day you're going to come in and it's a dollar. It it really, you know, stays pretty consistent. And most prices are quarter twenty five, twenty five to ten cents maybe off from each other. But everybody kind of stays in the same same price range.
2: So why do people choose to work with you as opposed to someone else?
4: Um, A lot of it goes off, you know, convenience and, you know, just who they choose as dealers and who they like. Um, Like, not everybody, like fishing in Millbridge, where we are, is not the same fishing in, say, Bar Harbor. You know, on a map, it looks close, but really in a boat, you're only fishing a certain area, so... If you fish in a certain area, you're going to sell to a dealer that's close to where you live and close to where you leave your boat.
2: Because it's location based. And now, do you provide other services for? I mean, can people fuel up with you? Can they buy bait from you, or is it? Do you just take the lobster?
4: No, we we have our full our own full service wharf. Um, we have bait, we have fuel, and you know we pretty much provide anything the boats need. They'll either. When they get done in the evening, put bait on their boat and fuel up, or they'll do it in the morning before they go to haul, and then they're off to catch their, pull their traps and catch their lobsters.
2: Nice, so they can see you at both ends of the day. Yep. <laughs> um, one of the things we've been talking a lot about yeah, with with other folks who we've had on is. Um, all the work that's done um, at all the different levels to promote uh, a sustainable lobster fishery. So what do you see as, as your role in, in ensuring that kind of the lobstering business, that the fishery is going to be there for, for future generations?
4: Um, it's definitely, you know, looking out and selling good quality product and not taking everything. Um, and it's also what Maine has done, set in place like certain restrictions, how they're fished, you know how what size you can take, and as you can see over time, that just the catch keeps going up and up and up, and it just shows that it's a sustainable product, and Maine is doing the right measures to keep it where it needs to be.
2: And what happens, like if you say you want, you know, unload a, a hull from someone, and there's there's lobster that are are you know out of spec. Um, is there a reporting process there? Is there a return process? I mean, does that not really happen or?
4: You know, typically fishermen know what the kind of the, the limits are. You know, they'll, sometimes you have to let them know that you can't use this product, but it doesn't generally happen as a rule because they kind of know what you can sell. And if it's really soft, I myself can't can't do anything with it so you really can't sell it so you're better off to actually leave that water in the ocean and you know give it another four weeks to get a shell on it and you, you can still catch it
2: got it right so you're preserving it for for ca- catching in the future i like that right. now one of the things uh that i was surprised at the so the lobster fisherman i hung out with actually and strangely turned out to be allergic to lobster so he didn't he didn't eat it. Um, what about you and your family? I mean, do you guys have a lot of lobster, or is it, is it uh, you know, kind of not, not the go-to source?
4: It's just one of those things. Everybody thinks that, you know, you handle a lot of lobsters, you eat them all the time. Um, it's one of those things that I'll eat it on occasion, um, but it just gets through. I, myself, my wife loves it, um, but myself, I eat it, and it's just, after you just handle so many of them, you kind of just get tired of looking at them.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. but
4: but on the other hand, like we'll eat them when it's a special occasion or family members come down. That people don't don't get them as often as we have them, and it, we'll just treat ourselves and treat them when they're around. So still, people that don't get it every day, that's when we usually eat it when they're around.
2: Yeah, and that makes sense. Well, if folks want to. Uh, to order some lobster uh, you have a variety of, of ways that they can do so and they can find you at www.dorrlobster.com that's d-o-r-r lobster.com chad thanks so much for taking some time out to shed a little light on your role in uh, Maine sustainable lobster fishery i really appreciate having you on the show today
4: oh well, i definitely appreciate it and you know we appreciate all the support that is not only as our business but as the main lobster industry itself and, and really that's what I'm trying to do, not only promote my business but as the fishery as a whole.
2: That's great. It's a real it's, well, you know, it takes a you know it takes a village or a community, right? Right. Well thanks a lot Chad and special thanks to Alyssa Goldman who helped me produce this series. Also thanks to Joe Galaraga, the engineering who's engineering for us today. Uh, tune in next week we'll be talking with Philip Ackerman about his book Rebuilding the Food Shed possibly a touch more uh, content than we're going to be able to cover in a half an hour, but we're going to do our best. This like all 30 of our live weekly shows are available for free as a download through iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher smart radio, but we hope you'll visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you like what you hear and we think you will definitely click that donate tab and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening and keep tuned in.
3: When you plant something, it keeps on giving.
1: Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support.
3: Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918.
1: BonniePlants.com What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update.
2: All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. We have a special guest host today. Caroline, welcome to the Market Update.
5: Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me.
2: So, where are we heading today?
5: Well, today we're going to hop on the one train and travel uptown to the 116th Street Stop, where our Columbia Green Market stretches for two blocks along Broadway, uh, flanking the entrance to the Columbia University campus. Every Sunday and Thursday, university faculty and students and Upper West Side residents come out to shop. And although many of the farmers attend on both days, each day has its own unique feel. Um, On Thursdays, the flow of the market day is determined by the class schedule. Faculty and students stop by to grab a snack or do their grocery shopping in between classes or on their lunch break. And they bring the busy energy of the school day uh, with them through the market. On Sunday mornings, things are a little more relaxed. And before 10 10 a.m., it's all dogs and babies. (laughs) But as the morning unfolds, the incredibly loyal market shoppers make their way up and down the length of the market, dropping off their compost, chatting with neighbors and their favorite farmers. And by noon or 1 p.m., most of the students are awake and can be seen passing through the market in their PJs. I've definitely
2: been playing that game in my neighborhood lately where I'm like, are you dressed or are you wearing your PJs? It's gotten a little (laughs) tough to tell. It's a fun game to play at market, too. Um, So what are the farmers or products that we should be on the lookout for at the market?
5: Yeah, there's actually an incredible amount of variety at this market, um, some mascots apples and cider donuts are a, an especially favorite treat on both days um, and shoppers love to get their frequent jammer card stamps that stamped at Beth's Farm Kitchen. Um, Standard Farm brings produce on both days and the farmer there, Rebecca, has watched neighborhood kids grow up over the many years she has been selling at the market. Um, Hawthorne Valley was a welcomed addition to the market last season. Um, they're prized for their biodynamic and organic baked goods, cheeses, and lacto-fermented products like sauerkraut and kimchi. Um, Thursday shoppers love Wanie's specialty greens and unique produce from New Jersey. And Buampane's Panay's Focaccias and Meredith's muff- Muffins are favorite lunch or snack items for students on the go. Millport Dairy has farm-fresh eggs and cheese from Lancaster County, and those of the sweet tooth can pick up a jar of honey from Ballard's. Um, so Sunday is rounded out with fresh wild-caught fish from Pura Vida coming out of Hampton Bays, animal, animal welfare-approved beef, pork, and chicken from Sawkill Farm, turkey from De Paula, and multi-ethnic breads from Hot Bread Kitchen and a variety of mushrooms from Madura. Hmm,
2: lovely. So assuming that we're not students at Columbia or living in the neighborhood and we make a special trip up, what else should we be checking out while we're there?
5: Yeah, there's actually still lots to do if you're not a student. Um, I'm a huge fan of Riverside Park with its colossally old trees, prime waterfront location, and well-paved bike path stretching along the entire west, of, west side of Manhattan. I would take Riverside over Central Park any day.
2: Um,
5: And in the section of Riverside Park closest to the market, American history buffs out there will be happy to learn that they can go visit Grant's tomb, the mausoleum housing the remains of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, And Morningside Heights also boasts some beautiful churches. Riverside Church, situated on top of a hill so that it's visible for miles. Is famous as much for its neo Gothic architecture as it is for its history of social justice and activism. And an incredible roster of notable figures have spoken there throughout its 80 year history, um, including Martin Luther King Jr., Bill Clinton, Kofi Annan, Arundhati Roy, and Nelson Mandela. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then if you head south on Amsterdam, you'll come across the incredible cathedral, St. John the Divine. Um, And if you have a chance to peek inside, you can marvel at the beautiful stained glass windows, architecture, and ceiling that stretches to the heavens. Um, Or if the weather is nice, you can wander through their gardens and even try to spot their resident peacock. Afterward, cross the street and spend a couple of hours at the Hungarian Pastry Shop, um, which is a decades-old neighborhood institution and a popular study spot, thanks to its sweet treats and unlimited coffee refills.
2: Man, that sounds like a full day. Thank you so much. So uh, what else should we be just knowing more generally about the market, things coming in or special events? What should we be keeping on the radar
5: Yeah, definitely. Um, This season is always really fun because there's new products coming in every week. Um, Just yesterday I noticed uh, at Union Square, Locust Grove had sweet cherries for the first time this week, um, which is really exciting, especially because there weren't too many cherries last year. Um, And summer squashes started to show up in the markets as well. Um, And today compost collection at the Columbia Market actually expanded to include Thursdays as well. Um, so Upper West Side residents can now drop off their food scraps during the week as well as on the weekends just in case that freezer starts to fill up with food scraps. You can drop them off in, on Thursdays as well. Um, and then look for Father's Day-themed cooking demos at market this weekend um, from grilling burgers with our farmer's beef to brunch ideas for dad's breakfast in bed. Um, so keep an eye out for free recipes and samples, which is the best part, at the Market Info tents. Um, on a more somber note, one of our grain producers, uh, Cayuga Pure Organic, suffered a devastating fire a little over a week ago. Um, their barn with a lot of the processing equipment was burned down. So in order, um, in an effort to help them rebuild, look for flyers at Market this weekend with information on our fundraising campaign and visit grownyc.org for more updates on, on how to help them with that. Um, Summer is in full swing, which means tons of market openings um, in the next couple weeks. We've got eight markets opening, um, including Parchester, which is tomorrow, Friday, June 14th, and the Staten Island Mall, which is opening up this Saturday, uh, June 15th. You can also check our website at grownyc.org slash rmarkets for um, more market openings over the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Um, Great, great, great. Thanks so
2: much for joining us. Look forward to hearing more from you. And of course, uh, continuing next Thursday as we make our way through the city's green markets.
5: Yeah, thank you, Erin. It was a blast.
2: So for folks, uh, like 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 Caroline said, definitely check them out at grownyc.org. You can find all the info on your neighborhood market, who's there, cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, follows up to anything that got mentioned here on the show today. If you want the most up-to-date in the moment news, definitely check them out on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever your preferred social media stream, uh, the great team at Green Markets will keep you up to date on the latest and greatest. So stay tuned in, and we will catch you next Thursday for another episode of the Grow NYC Market Update.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network.